Hello, and welcome to another all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I'm your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And this is the podcast where we read a poem, we talk about a poem, and then we read the poem again. But before we get to all that, we have a couple of exciting pieces of housekeeping. The first of which is that we got a very nice letter about our episode on Frank Chipasula's Manifesto on Ars Poetica. Yes, it is uh, from a true, another true friend of the pod, um, a one Dirk Stratton, who happens to be my uncle and is a poet, has been an avid listener and uh, wrote some some thoughts. And so we wanted to sort of read them and uh, respond to them. He wrote, Jack and Connor, just listen to your episode, uh, Manifesto on Ars Poetica. As manifestos and ars poeticas are two of my favorite genres. This was definitely a twofer. I'm loving this already. Re the pronunciation of bow or bow in the line. This was something that we had talked about and we really couldn't come to a nice agreement on. Um, okay. I will not bend my verses into the bow or bow of a praise song. Bow or bow. In the, uh, in the line, it's spelled B-O-W, but it's not necessarily clear from context whether it's bow, like the bow for an instrument, or a hunting bow, or bow, like bowing towards someone in praise or in supplication. Yes. And Uncle Dirk also included the spelling bow, as in the branch, as another third possibility. Referring back to an earlier line that included the image of the bow harp. I think a strong case can be made for the second bow being like the first, the noun, a bow as an archery. The idea that the harp, the archetypal poetical instrument, developed from the bow strikes me as almost mundane. It seems so obvious. But whatever the true evolution of the harp, linking a poetical weapon with a weapon of war is certainly the move Chipasula wants to make. Jack noted all the violence in the poem, for example. So, not letting the poem become the instrument that creates the, a praise song seems like a good reading. And then he has a however, but I'm just curious if we have any thoughts. This is a, there's a lot of sort of complex thinking going on here. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's, I think it's helpful to note that the harp has a kind of iconic uh, archetypal status, as Dirk points out, of the sort of essential or quintessential poetical instrument. Okay, so he continues. However, just as obvious, Chipasula likes the pun. The idea of, of bowing by praising or bowing in praise certainly must be on his mind. But you can't ignore how one would have to bend the bow to make it ready to pluck when creating a song either. Read silently, of course, a reader can get both readings of bow or bow simultaneously. What would be interesting would be to hear how Chipasula reads the poem out loud. Which meaning does he highlight via pronunciation? Which brings us to our quest that I think we have to ask of all of you. We scour the internet for recording of Chipasula reading this poem and I came up dry and Jack came up dry and there's, there's actually very few recordings of him generally. So if you're if you come across a recording of some kind, uh, please send it our way. 
Absolutely. Send it to us on Twitter, either to the show at Close Talking or to Connor at Hot Sauce Boxed or myself at Jack Rossiter Munn, or send it to us via email at Close Talking Poetry at gmail.com. Yeah. And one thing I especially like that that Dirk noted is in that line, um, the but you can't ignore how one would have to bend the bow to make it ready to pluck when creating a song, which I like because that puts both of them in the same moment where the bow is the thing that's bowing in the kind of bending fashion. Yeah, and when, when I think about that, then it really does seem to be a kind of both situation. Yeah, so one, one thing that could um, sort of be evidence or help us sort of read the pun as both meanings would be if if the word were sort of straggling on the end of the line in a sort of enjambment um, where, because that would sort of suspend the word for a moment in indeterminate meaning. Um, there's an example that I think I mentioned at one point of the first line of Lita and the Swan by William Butler Yeats um, goes, a sudden blow, the great wings beating still. Um, and then it goes above the staggering girl. But still for a moment, both means they're still beating, but they're also motionless in a sort of stillness kind of sense. Um, but he achieves that pun by the, the, the fact that still is the last word on the line. Um, and it's not, in this case, um, Bo Harp appears on the end of the line, um, but when Bo or Bow appears again, it's not. Um, so that's, that's another thing to think about. Definitely. And because that line is then immediately followed by, I will put the symbols of murder hidden in high offices in the center of my crude lines of accusation. You can see this as him taking a, uh, setting the stage for that line by taking uh, the bow of a harp, the harp, as Dirk points out, this really quintessential symbolic instrument of poetry and of the muse and putting that as like, I'm going to put this symbol in here. And then he tells you what he's going to do with other symbols in the next line. So I think that uh, also leads into that reading of the, of the line. Yeah. Agreed. Um, if any of you have, yeah, any other thoughts about either the bow and the bow, the great, the bow bow controversy, we want to, we want to keep this not a sort of one-sided conversation. So we really appreciate all this, uh, any kind of feedback that you might have. Absolutely. Yeah. Send it all. We love it. We love it. And another thing that we love, this is possibly the first bit of news. Since the first bit of news was the start of the podcast. So we have our second bit of news, which is our podcast, Close Talking, will be featured on a panel at the 2019 AWP, which is the Association of Writers and Writing Programs, um, which will be in Portland in March of next year. Um, AWP, for those uh, who don't know, is the largest literary conference in the continent of North America, which is a thing that they say on their website, but I also like to say because it sounds pretty cool. But yes, I will be um, the, the representative of close talking and I hope to do justice to it. And the pod, the, the panel will be called Literary Podcasting, The Good, The Bad, The Books. Um, and there's gonna be three other incredible podcasts and podcasters on the panel. 
Um, one will be uh, the Racist Sandwich podcast, which is an amazing podcast about sort of the intersection of food, race, class, and gender. Um, and also they have a kind of literary element that comes in a lot. Um, and the, the podcaster um, who's on Racist Sandwich um, is Zaheer John Muhammad. Um, and then there will be the Between the Covers podcast, which is an amazing interview podcast um, of authors, uh, which um, is done by David Naiman. And then the last panelist will be Taz Ahmed, who is a co-host on the hashtag Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast, which is about the American uh, female Muslim um, experience. And yeah, I, it's, we're both very excited for the opportunity. Um, it's, it's a really good chance um, to sort of bring our uh, podcast more into a different realm of uh, literary culture and discourse. Um, and if you're in Portland, um, March, I think 27th through 30th, uh, we will we will be there and I'll be, or at least I'll be there. Um, I think we'll see about Jack, but. I'm hoping to be there for sure. Yeah, hoping, hoping both of us will be there, but definitely I'll be there and I'll be um, wandering around when I'm not on the panel, buying too many books. Um, so I would, you know, love to, to chat about bows and bows. For sure. Yeah, that's the main reason I'm not sure if I'll go because I know I'll buy too many books. And so it's mainly like, well, if I don't want to buy too many books, I shouldn't go. But yeah. if I go, then I'll buy too many books. And that's a problem in general, just because I then have to transport them back to New York. Yes. For those who don't know, AWP has this insanely large book fair where basically like every publisher, press, from the big ones like Random House to the smallest ones have a little stand and they have all their books and it's just all in one big room and you walk around and then you buy them all. And then you're like, oh, I'm a, I'm a writer. I, I don't actually have the funds for this sort of investment, but. I do not have the money nor the living space to keep <laughs> up with this habit that I've yeah. developed. Then you're like, I can't move ever because books are the heaviest parts of moving. We're very excited. Um, as we get more details about the time um, of the panel itself, we'll definitely be letting you know. Um, but please check out all those other podcasts. Um, they're really, truly excellent. And um, yeah, I think we feel very humbled um, and honored to be sort of a part of them. Humbled and honored is exactly the way I would put it, because it's very exciting to be in conversation and in community with other exceptional literary podcasts, such as the ones that are going to be on uh, on this panel, because they are podcasts that I know Connor and myself both enjoy listening to and both learn a lot from. And so for our little old podcast and little old names to be up there with them feels really, really good and is very exciting. So today on our little old podcast, we've got a not so little old poem, a really exciting poem, If They Should Come For Us by Fatima Askar, um, which I am really excited to talk about. Yes, it's so good. So one of the many reasons you may have seen it is because it is it, it lends its title to her recent book, If They Come For Us, which was just published in 2018 by Penguin Random House. 
Um, Fatima Asghar identifies herself as being Pakistani, Kashmiri, Muslim, queer, and American. Uh, she has had her poetry featured all over the place, Poetry Magazine, BuzzFeed, a whole bunch of other high-profile places, as well as uh, being a creator of places for poetry to be featured um, and of media. She's the co-creator of Brown Girls, which is a web series, Emmy-nominated, and she is the 2017, one of the 2017 Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg recipients. So very exciting. Also a 2018 Forbes 30 under 30 in the entertainment category. So really? Yep. Wow, 100% awesome. along with her uh, Brown Girls co-creator. So big time, big time stuff. If you haven't seen the the web series Brown Girls, you should. It's really good. No, it's fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, um, she's definitely somebody to know about and she does great work and it has been, it is being justly rewarded with accolades and with uh, career success. So that's also exciting. I think without further ado, we should dive into this here poem. Let's read it. Yeah. All right. If They Should Come For Us by Fatima Asghar. These are my people, and I find them on the street and shadow. Through any wild, all wild, my people, my people. A dance of strangers in my blood. The old woman's sorry dissolving to wind, bindi, a new moon on her forehead. I claim her my kin, and sew the star of her to my breast. The toddler dangling from stroller, hair a fountain of dandelion seed. At the bakery, I claim them too. The Sikh uncle at the airport who apologizes for the pat down. The Muslim man who abandons his car at the traffic light, drops to his knees at the call of the Azan. And the Muslim man who sips good whiskey at the start of Maghreb. Balone Kala at the park, pairing her kurta with Crocs. My people, my people, I can't be lost when I see you. My compass is brown and gold and blood. My compass, a Muslim teenager, snapback and high tops, gracing the subway platform. Masallah, I claim them all. My country is made in my people's image. If they come for you, they come for me too. In the dead of winter, a flock of antis step out on the sand, their dupatas turn to ocean. A colony of uncles grind their palms, and a thousand jasmines bell the air. My people, I follow you like constellations. We hear the glass smashing the street, and the nights opening their dark. Our names, this country's wood, for the fire. My people, my people, the long years we've survived, the long years yet to come, I see you map my sky, the light, your lantern long ahead, and I follow. I follow. This is a great one. This is a really good one. Um, there are a couple of different words dropped in there that might need a bit of explanation. Um, so Maghreb is the fourth of the five daily prayers in Islam. It is known as the West Prayer. Um, a kurta is like a really long sort of shirt-like garment that is uh, often worn. 
Masalah basically means God willing, and a dupata is a type of shawl kind of garment. And azan is like the sort of basic call to prayer. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think those are the various words I identified as as maybe needing explanation. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what drew you to the poem, um, and kind of like, yeah, what are you, what are you thinking about it? I have two thoughts. Um, the first was one that crystallized further when I heard an interview with Fatima Askar about uh, the question of the title of her series, Brown Girls, and what brown meant to her. And she was talking about how she wanted it to be a very inclusive and collective term, and that it had a kind of active solidarity about it, and that she wanted it to be about bringing people together, but without any sort of appropriation or erasure, and that it was celebrating difference, but also the connection that could be found in difference. Um, and I feel like there is a strong strain of that running through this poem because it's very much about my people as a refrain that comes through it. And so it's about her connecting with people who it seems to me embody a lot of the different aspects of how she feels her identity is formed, different aspects of her own identity that she sees in other people who are not necessarily 100% similar to each other, but have aspects of their personhood that resonate with her on a very deep level. But there's also this other thread that runs through it, which I think creates this really interesting tension in the poem uh, that is drawn out in a very specific way that I want to point to. And that very specific tension is that there is this kind of like dangerous force that hovers over the whole thing because the title of the poem is if they should come for us. And so it's not just like a personal volition binding, but it feels a little bit like a binding in the face of a malicious external force. And I saw that in a couple of places. I'm also reading a book right now, Hitler's Willing Executioners, which is this sort of groundbreaking history from 1996 that really pointed the finger at average everyday Germans and made the very strong case, which has now been basically accepted as part of the historical record, that Germany on a whole was complicit in the Holocaust, but more than being complicit, was actually fairly active in it. It wasn't just the SS or Nazi party officials who were responsible, but really everyday Germans were much more responsible than had previously been acknowledged. Um, and where I see a connection to that is the lines, we hear the glass smashing the street and the nights opening their dark. That to me, obviously, crystal knocked the night that Jewish businesses and, and homes were attacked, uh, given its name because of all the smashed glass in the street. There's also um, the poem, uh, First They Came uh, by Martin Thignemuller, um, who was a German Lutheran pastor, which I feel like the the title um, is a response to, which which you've probably seen in some form before, but it goes, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. First, then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Um, and, you know, then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Um, that's at least one of the, one part of it. Um, and so I think, you know, if they come for us is the first they came for. Um, so it, it does seem to be like a, a sort of, and, and also recently, you know, with, um, like the 
the Trump since the Trump election and like the rise of even more explicit um, like Islamophobia and other and and forms of racism and xenophobia um, that have been there um, sort of for a long time and then even more after 9/11 um, people have used have sort of adapted that poem um, as a sort of like, we will not let this happen, you know, to um, these groups of people, you know, first they came, like, I feel like I've seen on the internet, first they came for this person. And I said, like, no, or, you know, I put up my fist or something like that. Absolutely. No. And I think that that poem is totally a reference point. And there are two interesting things I think about that, which is one, the title here saying if they should come for us almost indicates we'll be the first ones they come for. And for someone who embodies so many different highly marginalized identities, I think that's a really interesting place to be writing from. Um, and, And I think that that is in the poem. And there's one aspect in the craft of the poem that I'm curious about how it operates for this Um, which is that the word and does not appear in it. It is always an ampersand. And I'm interested in what that means as a function of and is a word that connects two things. And so in a poem where there is so much about what connects the speaker with other people, but Mm. also about the force that operates on them and is possibly tearing them apart, what does it mean that the connecting word and is not used at all and that it is replaced with an ampersand. I don't know if I have the best answer for that. Um, I do think part of it, which is the boring part of the answer, is that there is a kind of trend um, in some strains of contemporary poetry and in older strains of contemporary poetry. A use of Komanyaka only uses ampersands, for example. and I'm sure there are many others, um, to use the ampersand. Um, There's actually an interesting interview on Dive Dapper between um, Kaba Akbar and Ocean Vong, and they have a long conversation about ampersands. Yeah, Ocean Vong says, I insist on the ampersand in my writing because to me it is a symbol that feels truer to the word and than the word and itself. This is what he says. He says, in a way, and this is Ocean Vong talking. In a way, it enacts the ampersand, enacts the plus sign. It performs the figure holding two words together. So the ampersand feels more like itself than its worded rendition. Also, and also it is something that illiterate people like the mother figure in the poem that they were talking about could recognize. It's a symbol. It's a tangible moment. And I think my insistence on it in my writing is a nod to the tangibility of language and how it has possibilities to be more than itself outside of the alphabet, like say in the body, which is a very fascinating take on the ampersand. I'm sure many of us just like the ampersand because you had to type one thing instead of three things to make it. But I think part of that perhaps speaks to this poem's use of it in that um, it's, it's additive maybe more than like connective. Interesting. Um, I was listening to, um, there's a great, other great poetry podcast that I've mentioned before called the Versus Podcast, which is through the Poetry Foundation. Um, and it's hosted by the poets Denez Smith and Franny Choi. 
were wonderful and they had Fatima Oscar on the podcast and she read this poem. So we'll link to it because her reading of it is great and they talk about it and it's great. Um, but she said something similar to what you were talking about in that interview where she was talking about like, um, you know, how wide can I make my people or like how wide can I cast this net and include things. But at the same time, she was saying that my people is like a term that's like constantly shifting. You know, it's like, it's, um, you know, it's moving around first. It means this, then it means that, you know, like, um, and so that kind of slipperiness with the inclusivity um, in some ways feels like it's more of an additive thing where rather than like sort of um, bringing all these people together into one kind of like connected larger one person, it's, it's like um, it's a, it's a clunk of different people who are connected, but are all different in different ways, which I think, is kind of like um, I think one of the the great the great parts of this poem too. Um, just as a small example, which was something that Franny Troy had pointed out, was the moment in the poem where um, the poem goes, "I um, the Sikh uncle at the airport who apologizes for the pat down," um, and you know to claim. Um, the Sikh man from a Muslim speaker, they have a fraught history, um, very violent, that sort of dates back probably further, but certainly um, in 1947, there was the partition that's that sort of divided the borders, made the borders between India and Pakistan, and there was just like total bloodshed between um, Sikh people and Hindu people and then Muslim people because they had been, I mean, this is like the crudest version of history ever, but before the partition, there had been like uh, Muslims in what would then become India and Sikh people and um, Hindus in what would then become Pakistan. But then when they were created, um, suddenly, you know, they were in the quote unquote wrong country. And so that um, created a bunch of yeah, it was brutal. And so for um, the poem speaker to claim um, a Sikh man or to claim, you know, um, a Muslim man who's drinking whiskey, um, which, you know, in like the more traditional kinds of Islam, you don't drink alcohol, um, is, is a way of, of bringing a, a large net of people without sort of reducing them um, to like some homogenous thing. Uh, yeah, definitely. Celebrating the individuality of these people while still saying there's something about you and I that is, that is connected without taking away anything from what makes them unique and different. And something else that's interesting about that to me, because as you pointed out, that history is so important to understand about what the actual contours of the relationship around the partition in 1947 are in terms of how radical an act it is to be claiming a Sikh person and a Muslim person um, as part of quote unquote my people. But also after 9-11, there was a huge rash of uh, hate crime attacks on Sikh people in New York City because of the visual presentation of what being a Sikh person looks like. Um, there were many, uh, particularly men, but the fact that I think 
going along with the poem's title of If They Should Come For Us, there's this radical act of inclusion that's happening, but there's also this almost inclusion by necessity because we're going to get lumped together, whether we like it or not, in some ways. And mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure how that tension plays out. Um, for the most part, I think what's interesting is the multiplicity of identities, as you were pointing to, that each individual who is being claimed seems to be embodying. So there's a lot of contradictions going on, as you said. Um, and that's something that Fatima Askar has talked about in terms of herself, because she is she sees herself as Pakistani and Kashmiri, which is two seemingly very different things. How can you be both? Well, I can. How can you be queer and Muslim? Those seem to be two things that don't go together. Well, here I am, I'm both. You know, um, and that a lot of what she does in her work is looking at those seeming contradictions in her own different identities and putting them together and really looking at what they mean and how she, uh, in her personhood, synthesizes them and also then in her work can work through what it means to be these things that many identify from the outside as being contradictory, but which are not necessarily. Um, and I think this poem points to a lot of moments like that, where you have uh, a Muslim teenager snap back in high tops gracing the subway platform. It's like, yeah, you can be all of these different things. You can be so much in one person. Yeah. And that the, the you know, it there's a lot of like the, the clothes have become such a like problematic signifier of identity, especially, you know, for the people that um, the speaker is claiming. Um, the turban is one great example. Um, and so the deliberate sort of um, choice to say my compass a Muslim teenager and sort of explicitly be like, this teenager is Muslim, but has like high tops and a snapback teenager vibes. Um, and to put those two together, because obviously they exist, is, is I, yeah, I think part of, part of the, the really like cool and subtle work that the poem is doing. That section in particular reminded me a little bit of the, this is the future that liberals want meme, which was originally put out by a conservative, which featured a picture of a person uh, in a head covering next to someone who appears to be probably in drag uh, on the subway together. And all of the replies and the spread of it were basically like, yeah, no shit, this is the future liberals want. Like, yes, let's <laughs> celebrate everyone's difference and maybe everything is okay. Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, come oh, on. Um, yeah. But it seems to me that a little bit, but also, What's interesting to me is that the various people who are being claimed as my people are also people who are embodying these two like popularly thought of as opposed things or could be seen to be opposed things but are actually just synthesizing their own identity out of the the way that they are in the world which seems like a very strong connection to how Fatima Askar talks about her own uh, way of being and her own area of like real interest and in artistic inquiry. Yeah, and that's also just like a great efficient poetic technique where you, you just have two images or details that, um, you know, seem to be in tension with each other. Um, and by putting them together, um, one, there's the, the political import of it, as you've mentioned, but also then the, the tension sort of creates something larger out of itself. Um, 
and and you can do a lot of work um you know within you know pretty pretty short amount of time that's kind of like the first big chunk of the poem is this like litany this list of people that she claims as her people um and then there's a sort of turn when um you know she says if they come for you they come for me too um and it's a you know we echo the um the title um and it's sort of the first kind of like um the completion of the if they come for us so it's like um they're coming for me too and i i'm not just i'm not just claiming the, you know you all as my people but also i know that they will come for me too um in some kind of way that there is this you know two forces sort of pushing against each other um and then it's a kind of the imagery gets very interesting i think um after that moment after that sort of turn so there's um and and the scale gets bigger so we started out with a lot of like individual people um in very specific like in the subway or whatever but then it's if they come for you they come for me too in the dead of winter a flock of antes step out on the sand their dupatas which is um the kind of shawl scarf um that covers the head it's another word that might need some clarification um Turn to ocean, um, a colony of uncles grind their palms, and a thousand jasmines bell the air. Um, so there's like, the aunties are a flock, the uncles are a colony, things are turning to ocean, things are, things are like expanding. Yeah, and then sort of where do we get after that expansion? We get this beautiful line, uh, my people, I follow you like constellations. Um, and this seems to be like the final, uh, there's more to it, but the closing, the start of the closing, um, progression, I think, which is okay. It's not enough to just claim these people as my people, but what am I, what are they to me and what do I, um, do beyond claiming? And there's a, I feel like it's very it's a surprising and, and marvelous moment where the speaker is following um, these people. So I follow you like constellations that there's a kind of um, almost deference, but certainly like um, a respect and acknowledgement um, rather than like, it's not a leader per se, the speaker, you know what I mean? Um, and that carries through, you know, at the, to the very end where we have, you know, my people, my people, the long years we've survived, the long years you have to come. I see you map my sky, the light, your lantern long ahead. And I follow, I follow map is a great verb. And there's this kind of like, you know, by sort of claiming these people as her people and by sort of joining them together she sees stars she sees light she sees a map of of a path to follow yeah i just i i feel like that's that turn 
sort of surprise me um, in like a really great way. Definitely. I like you point out that it's sort of going against the speaker as leader because the speaker is the one who is kind of joining all of these people together. But in the joining, it's almost like I join you in my head as part of my people as a concept. And in doing that, I then see all of these people as like examples of ways to be. And that that is part of what then forms this, uh, you know, I follow you like constellations. Part of what connects us is then I follow your example. I see through you another way of being that is like my own. And I can use that as a way to feel you know, more at home in myself going forward um, through that connection, which I think is really cool. Um, I'm really glad you pointed out the, uh, if they come for you, they come for me too in the dead of winter lines as like the breaking point. Cause I actually, the first time I read through that, the poem, I uh, underlined those lines and I noted that I thought, and I'm not quite sure why I used this terminology, but I'll stick with it. I wrote <laughs> brave line break. Um, and I did that because the way the lines break there to me is a little like counterintuitive perhaps because it goes, if they come for you, they line break, come for me too in the dead line break of winter, a flock of line break aunties. So there's like these very interesting places to break the lines because if it were me, noob of a poet, I would probably <laughs> go, if they come for you, line break, they come for me too, line break. Because that's another way to like really highlight, oh, this is a turning point in the poem. This is a major point I want to drive home. Like if they come for you, they come for me too. Ooh, like I'm really hitting you with the knowledge now. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to break my lines so that you really get those two messages. And it made me think of like, the way that actors will sometimes give really creative readings of lines uh, in a way that like breaks <laughs> them apart, but like really serves the lines well. Um, for some reason, I particularly thought of the, there's a one moment in the dark night when the Joker is getting interrogated and he tells Batman basically like when the cops don't need you, uh, the line is they'll cast you out like a leper which is a big thematic element of the story, which is basically like, what is the service of Batman? And by the end of the film, he does get blamed for a bunch of stuff. And that's like kind of, you know, he's the dark knight. The city can put all of its, you know, responsibilities onto him as like all of the darkness within it. And he can be the, he can be whatever Gotham needs him to be basically. <laughs> but instead of being all straightforward and they'll cast you out like a leper in the line reading, Heath Ledger goes like, they need you right now. When they don't, they'll cast you out like a leper. He like does this pause <laughs> and then hits that second part of the line with almost like, oh yeah, I just thought of this, which also not only gets across the point of the line, but gives this whole other element of the Joker's kind of like making it up as he goes along, agent of chaos. The line reading then gives you these two levels of what's going on. And I really responded to that here as well of this like, this is a really brave and interesting line break to, to start off this whole last section of the poem because it's the kind of line break that makes me as a reader see something I don't expect and then I pay more attention, basically, um, which is a really cool thing that happens uh, when you see it because it's if they come for you, they come for me too in the dead line break of winter. 
And so you end the lines with they, so this nebulous, aggressive force, and then you end the next line with dead, a really existential threat to the speaker. And so that, in many ways, packs a much bigger punch than if you say, if they come for you, line break, they come for me too. You and two, like, it's an actual couplet. Um, <laughs> it's like not that exciting or interesting instead of they, dead. Like, these are real, this really drives home both the idea that this is a little bit of a break from where the poem has been into a new section, but it also drives home the reality of the threat that the speaker is under from this nebulous they. So I was really struck by that going into this last this last section. Yeah, I think that's really right. Um, and I like that you're that you're talking about line breaks. Always down to talk about line breaks. Yeah, it is very, there's a lot of harsh ones here. The other interesting part about the poem um, that comes across when you read it rather than when you listen to it is that there's zero punctuation in the poem. Um, and I think there's no capitalization. Um, so, yeah, that makes the kind of um, syntactical, grammatical flow un less clear than it would be, you know. Um, it also sort of adds, I think, broadly some urgency to the poem because it's sort of the words are coming in this kind of this constant stream. Um, but in this specific instance, I think you're exactly right. And the other thing that I that I think is is sort of interesting. Um, is the line of winter a flock of, and then it's anti step out on, on the sand. This is actually a lot like the moment in Kava Akbar's waiting for the 12th, which um, where he has these kinds of lines where the end of a sentence or a phrase sort of begins the line. And then the, um, beginning of the new phrase or sentence ends the line. And so you're sort of like reading the new phrase or sentence before you even realize you're actually doing that. So yeah, so in that poem, there's a moment um, of earth like a pad of butter on turtle meat, the birch, and then line break curled its tongue. So in there, the birch is kind of starting a phrase, the birch curled its tongue, but it's on the same line as uh, turtle meat. And in here we have um, in the dead of winter is its own phrase and a flock of antis step out on the sand is its own phrase. Um, but the line is of winter, a flock of. Um, and for me, I feel like one thing that this does as we've been sort of talking about is just make it like confusing to read, which is helpful in making you read closer. Um, and and that's sort of a smart thing to sort of put, uh, you know, when you're having a kind of turn in a poem. I'm not exactly sure the significance of this, but um, you sort of pair flock with winter. Um, whereas if there was on separate lines, it'd just be the flock of antis. So now flock is kind of um, straddling connotations where it's sort of flock with the winter and then a flock with aunties. What do we make of this? Please let me know. Well, part of what I make of it is just by having of winter a flock of, you naturally start to fill in like some kind of bird, 
because that's what there are flocks of. But then again, the poem sort of swerves you to the side and says, nope, it's aunties. And they step out onto the sand and then they turn their garments turn to ocean, which is a really cool image. Mm-hmm. Um, and to pair this aunties who are turning into ocean with a colony of uncles that to me calls up a lot of migration and navigation, oceanic travelings of peoples, um, the creation of colonies in the new world, you know, traveling across the ocean to establish a colony, but also colonies of uncles grind their palms and a thousand jasmines bell into the air. My people, I follow you like constellations also calls up like celestial navigation at sea where you follow the stars to find your way uh, when you're on an ocean going vessel before contemporary navigation equipment. So you're also then like in this bygone time of navigation and migration. But there's also, uh, I think the most immediate connection most readers would make is to following constellations to freedom for following the North Star, which is how many slaves escaped captivity in the South to follow the the North Star. And to have those kinds of images and connections going on lends another layer of meaning where a lot of what's going on in the first part of the poem is not just um, more individual, but it also feels to me at least a little more contemporary. And here we're entering a more timeless space and it's a more deep, long connection that's going on, not just these like surface level. Um, there's the dupatas, which is clothing, but like there's a lot of clothing discussion in the beginning. And then here we're going into these really eternal levels of uh, our names, this country's wood for the fire, like these really elemental levels of connection and symbolism that go, that go on. Like it's the stars, it's the universe, it's the oldest thing there is. Um, it goes beyond just these immediate levels of connection to the real underlying deep like meanings behind these connections and the, and the depth with which they can be felt. Yeah. Yeah. I really agree with that. I also am thinking I have one interesting thought and one thing that's not really a thought, but more <laughs> just something that I love, which I'll start with that one is Bring the it. line a thousand Jasmine's bell, the air is such a beautiful line bell as a verb i love i love when uh nouns become verbs and it's just wonderful i think it's especially because i i think the way that the image is is that the uncles are grinding the jasmines perhaps uh and then they're sort of like being tossed or they're flying into the air somehow but the belling um which it's like obviously jasmine like flowers have bells um so it's referring in part to that but then it's kind of like bell then because it's a verb it gets more of its sonic resonance so then it's kind of like they sound the air like a like a ringing bell that's uh that's a line you keep that's a line you write down to uh remember Um, absolutely uh, my other sort of thought is one thing that's interesting about this poem, it has gone perhaps viral, but it's certainly, it's resonated with a lot of people, I think, um, and it's been spread on the internet because of that resonance. And a lot of that is, of course, because it is speaking, you know, very directly to the, like, the moment that's happening right now. I think that title if they should come for us 
is is part of you know what like makes that happen. But then and then I kind of think about um, you know it's kind of a you know all poems have like political implications or do political work of some kind. The personal certainly is political, um, but there do seem to be poems that are kind of like what you might call committed politically or something, or, or like pronouncing a kind of political um, stance or trying to make a, a statement, you know, or whatever. Um, and this poem seems to be one of those poems where it's it's a very um, bold and um, it's a poem I think that's best heard aloud to, to me. Um, and certainly the lack of punctuation I think also em emphasizes the, the, the sort of the oral nature of, of it. But one of the ways I think that sort of one of the, the subtler ways in a way that it um, works as a political poem because then, and this is, I'm really just flying off the seat of my pants here, but I think to make a political poem, it has to resonate at a, like a, um, a higher pitch of the discourse. Um, you know, it has to sort of, when people are thinking in a political mode, like, this poem has to sort of touch those registers that make them go, oh, yes, this is what I'm thinking about. You know, one, and, you know, like a poem that is about, um, only about looking at daisies, um, for a very bad cliche example, may have, you know, political implications, maybe talking about the connectedness of people to nature or whatever. Um, but because daisies aren't in the political discourse, or if it's just like a very literal description of these daisies, um, someone who is kind of like committed politically or in the, in the conversation of the political, it's not gonna hit those bells, or if it, it, hit, it might hit other bells. So how do you hit the bells? And I just wanted to sort of Think about that a little bit. Um, part of that is this title um, that's sort of making an explicit re reference, and that happens again in in kind of another in another way <clears throat> in the body of the poem, which is "My country is made in my people's image." You know, that's a that's a phrase. You know, the country made in our image is like um, I'm not exactly sure where comes from, but it's a phrase we all know and are familiar with and is constantly invoked for various purposes. And so that's a very deliberate um, repurposing, reclaiming, um, you know, of sort of like existing um, phrases sort of for the poem's own ends. Um, and in a quieter way, but still, still kind of relevant, I think, is a general move to use what you could call ready-made symbols um, or using words in a way that's immediately figurative. So um, there's lots of examples of this, um, like a dance of strangers in my blood, the phrase in my blood, um, the uh, when I see you my compass, 
is brown and golden blood my compass um let's see um i follow you like constellations um you know i see you map my sky so those words like um compass is a great example is immediately used as the symbol of providing direction right there's not a moment in the poem where we ever think we're seeing a compass, I think, which which we've sort of seen lots of poems um, uh, where they kind of are gradually working with a literal image. Um, and then at some point they go like, oh, it's a symbol. And then you're like, whoa. Um, this isn't sort of like working on that level. Um, the symbols are kind of like being used um, sort of more immediately. And it's a familiar one. Like anyone, people have said, you know, that you are my compass. Like that's that's um, in in the kind of like symbolic lexicon of, of many people, I think. And in a similar way, you know, in my blood is a kind of like immediate symbol of like, you know, they're at the core of me, where blood is referring sort of figuratively to one's essential constitution or self in that kind of way. And we never have a moment where we're like, uh, there's blood, like actually, like we see the viscous liquid anywhere, you know, which, which a poem could do. Um, and to me, the purpose of some, I think many times, that doesn't work in a poem. I feel like the reason, one reason why it does work in this poem is because the poem needs to sort of like register at a high, high political pitch. Um, and even though you can kind of like read it again and again, as we have and notice these like small little nuances, which are, I think, essential to the poem, it also needs to be like hard hitting on a first listen you know and to do that you can't like dwell on describing the minutia of a compass that would just be a waste of time um so yeah i just wanted to draw a little attention to the way that um the poem's use of language it that way i totally agree and you're so right that those big splashy moments are the ones that on a first read grab you and not in an obnoxious hit you over the head with the message kind of way, but in a deepening of connection kind of way. So you hear about my compass. And as you said, that's an immediate connection to like, yeah, we all say things are like, oh yeah, this is my friend who's my rock or you're my compass. Um, and like, this is in my blood. We have an immediate understanding of what that means of like, this is really close to me. Uh, and the title of the poem, in fact, if they should come for us, that's a pretty quick and close connection. And as you mentioned, my country is made in my people's image. That's almost a joining together of um, like the religious side of we're all made in God's image. What does that mean? That's something that gets brought up often. Also, my country being made in my image. Was this a country that was made for me? To what degree was it? To what degree wasn't it? To say that my country is made in my people's image is a strong statement from the speaker about how she is thinking about the country that she wants, however close reality is to that. Um, it reminds me of the Bruce Springsteen quote, as most things do, that his <laughs> career is about tracing the American dream and American reality and the distance between those two things at any time. 
Um, and a little bit that depends on what is your definition of the American dream. But if you take a progressive, liberal, forward-thinking, forward-looking view of what that is, as I would imagine Fatima Asghar does, because um, she includes in one of, among her list of identities, she includes American, because it's what she is. And so to say that my country is made in my people's image after specifically listing the many different people she is considering as members of my people is a really strong and interesting political statement, both on the level of country-specific politics, but also to the degree it has religious resonance because she's specifically calling out various individuals who are Muslim and in a United States of America that is being particularly hostile to Muslims and has been for the last... I mean, kind of forever, but pretty much even worse since the last, you know, 17 years, uh, and particularly so in the last three years, it's getting worse. Um, that's another like radical, but easily and quickly decipherable statement that is not specifically saying, it's not coming out and being like the obnoxious Neil Young record an entire album of protest music in 2006, which included such gems as let's impeach the president for lying, which like, yeah, okay, cool. That one specifically has kind of come back around and is relevant again, but they were so aggressively, specifically political to that moment. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it just makes it harder for that to be a resonant personal statement in addition to being a strident political message. And I think that this is a really good example of being a meaningful personal statement that is engaged really thoughtfully with politics. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. Um... Do you have any other thoughts? I think, um, should we read it again? Yeah, I think we should read it again. All right, this is If They Should Come For Us by Fatima Asghar. These are my people, and I find them on the street and shadow through any wild, all wild. My people, my people. A dance of strangers in my blood. The old woman's sorry dissolving to wind, Bindi a new moon on her forehead. I claim her as my kin, and sew the star of her to my breast. The toddler, dangling from stroller, hair a fountain of dandelion seed, at the bakery. I claim them too. The Sikh uncle at the airport who apologizes for the pat-down. The Muslim man who abandons his car at the traffic light, drops to his knees at the call of the Azan, and the Muslim man who sips good whiskey at the start of Maghreb, the lone Kala at the park, pairing her kurta with Crocs, my people, my people, I can't be lost when I see you. My compass is brown and gold and blood. My compass, a Muslim teenager, snapback and high tops gracing the subway platform. Masala, I claim them all. My country is made in my people's image. If they come for you, they come for me too. In the dead of winter, a flock of aunties step out on the sand, their dupatas turn to ocean. A colony of uncles grind their palms and a thousand jasmines bell the air. My people, I follow you like constellations. We hear the glass smashing the street and the night opening their dark. Our names, this country's wood, for the fire. My people, 
my people, the long years we've survived, the long years yet to come, I see you map my sky, the light your lanterns long ahead, and I follow, I follow. Hey everybody, this is Jack Rossiter Munley saying a big ol' thanks for listening. Special thanks to Dirk Stratton for writing in to us with his thoughts on Frank Chipasula's manifesto on Ars Poetica and the use of bow or bow or bow. Also, a shout out to Jessamine Price, who was nice enough to say some kind things about the podcast on Twitter. Thanks for that, Jessamine. That was awesome. You can find us on Twitter at Close Talking. You can find me on Twitter at Jack Rossiter Munn. And you can find Connor at Hot Sauce Boxed. If you have thoughts about the show, suggestions for poems for future episodes, that's always a great way to reach out to us. Or you can send us an email. We have our email address, which is CloseTalkingPoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook, facebook.com slash close talking. So we've got a lot of different ways for you to get in touch with us. And we absolutely love to hear all your thoughts on past episodes and to get suggestions for future ones. So again, thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.